Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you this morning, uh, even remotely. It's nice to be with you. Nice to have you here. Hopefully, uh, you've got your Bibles and uh, you've got them open to Ephesians 3 already. If you don't, we'll continue to put the text on the screen for those of you who uh, may not have a Bible there or, or one of the Ephesians journals. Uh, for the record, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, my name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff here at Fullerton Free. And uh, if you are just joining us, we're in the midst of an ongoing study in the book of Ephesians. We're kind of hitting our halfway mark today. So as we come here to Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, there's a little bit of a, of a, of a tipping point, if you will. Um, we talked when we very first began this series that, uh, that the way the book is structured, Paul is going to take the first half of the book, the first three chapters, and he's going to inspire us. He's, going to, he's striving to awe us both with a clear view of who God is, a clear view of who he has made us and who he has redeemed us to be, but also a sense uh, in which he has brought us out of the depths of despair and brokenness, that we're saved by grace, that it's not our own works. He does that at the beginning of chapter two. And then at the end of chapter two, he articulates this beautiful truth, which is that no matter who we were before, no matter how we considered ourselves or what kind of past we had, no matter what kind of background, Jew, Gentile, he says there there are no more outsiders, that in Christ we are made one family. Then, as we get into chapter 3, he begins what, uh, what would have been a prayer, and he stops to articulate um, some truth about his own calling, the fact that he has been given grace in order to give grace to other people, that he sees himself as a steward of the grace of God on behalf of other people. He's even in prison because of that ministry, because of that stewardship. And now, at the end of chapter 3, he's going to return to the prayer he began in 3. Uh, As we get into chapters 4, 5, and 6, starting next week, we're going to move from this sense of trying to stir awe and wonder and appreciation both for who God is, who he has redeemed us to be, and the unity we have in him. He's going to move from that sense of awe to a real clear call to action. In fact, we'll see in 4, 5, and 6, there are very practical things about how we reveal Christ in our actions, in our attitudes, in our interactions with one another, in the way we serve, in the way we speak, in the way we live. So he's going to move into these practical Practicalities in the last half, but as he finishes this first half, where he's sort of building up our awe and wonder, he finishes with prayer, and that's important. I want to say this as well. Um, this text may seem familiar to you. In fact, I preached this very same text, Ephesians three fourteen through twenty one, on August twenty sixth. 2018, so it wasn't even two years ago, uh, we were v- just kicking off our mission statement series. You may remember this, uh, and, and the very first message I taught in that series was here in Ephesians 3, talking about what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. In the midst of Paul's prayer, he talks here about us being uh, strengthened by the Spirit of God in our inner being, and so we use this as a core text to say, what does the Spirit of God do when he empowers us, and what does he empower us toward? Now, I was nervous about reteaching the text because I felt like, for many of you, it would feel like a redundancy. I mentioned that fear to my wife, and she said, oh, don't worry about it. Nobody remembers what you say. So I feel a little bit, a little bit better and a little bit worse in different ways. You know? so thanks for laughing at that, John. John Tavay, what would I do without John Tavay here on Sunday to laugh at my stupid jokes? Thank you. Um, all that to say, I'm going to teach the same text, and there will be some redundancy, but I actually, the reason I gave you the date of August 26, 2018, is that it actually will be beneficial for you. If you didn't hear that message, or you don't remember it, it would be great for you to go back on the app or on the website, go back and listen to that, because there are some things about his prayer that I'm, I'm not going to restate in depth. So you can go back and review some of that. I, I am going to take the opportunity this morning 
to look at things that I did not have the opportunity to camp out as long uh, that I think are relevant to where we're at today as we walk through it in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 this morning. So you'll want to see these two messages as kind of fitting together. There will be some redundancy, but it might be worth going back to listen to that uh, because some of this stuff we're going to move past pretty quick. So what I want to say here is, with regard to this prayer, this is the second of two prayers in the book of Ephesians. And the first thing I want you to understand as we look at the prayer is that Paul has done a great job of articulating theological truth. He's articulated incredible things about the saving grace of Christ, about his redeeming work, about the unity that we have in him. I mean, as, as far as the letter goes, it is theologically deep, it's articulate, it's inspiring, it's clear. But I want you to understand that for all of that work, for all the work that he's done to try and teach us some things, to try and inspire us, to try and uh, cause us to be humbled by the fact that we've come from a broken past, that we were separated before, for all of the great articulation that he's done, Paul recognizes that a great speech isn't enough. That great theology isn't enough. That great teaching isn't enough. That there's only so much that he, as a steward of the grace of God, can do in his own strength and in his own power. And so what he does here, before he pivots to these practical instructions, what he does is he prays. Before we even look at the content of the prayer, it's important for us to understand the principle here. We talked last week as we were talking about being stewards of God's grace that each and every one of us are called to have an impact in our various circles. And I'm gonna, in the coming months and years, I'm gonna be talking about your circle quite a bit. We talked last week about the fact that the church is not a place you come to on Sunday, that church isn't a, an 80 minute service on Sunday morning, that church is a people to whom you belong, that each and every one of us are the church and we have the opportunity to bring the church as we go out into our neighborhoods and into our workplaces and into our families. Each and every one of us have a circle or a sphere of influence. And I asked you, challenged you last week to think about who's in your circle. I would guess that for those of you who are, uh, are parents, your kids are in your circle. They should be. Your spouses are in your circle. For those of you who are single, it might be a group of close friends. For those of you uh, who, who maybe are widowed or, or uh, are, are living alone, you, you may have a circle of people that you interact with over Zoom right now, people that you used to go bowling with or doing other things. We all have a circle, a sphere of influence, coworkers and people that God has uniquely placed in our lives to be uniquely revealed to them by us, right? That Christ wants to be revealed in our lives uniquely to the people that he's put around us. I challenged you last week to take the time and write down the list of the people that are in your circle. Now, the way that thing typically works is there's probably, uh, there are probably like 4% of you actually did that homework. I wanna say it again because it's important. It will be important foundationally for who we are as a church in the months and years ahead. You need to know who's in your circle. You need to know who God has uniquely placed you in connection with to have an influence, right? And some of those are Christians and some of those are people who don't know the first thing about Jesus. But the first thing you need to do is identify who they are. You need to know their names. And it's worth noting that your circle may change. So if you write a list today of who's in your circle, uh, some of those things may change. I got, a, I got a son who's getting ready to go to college next year. And if they let him go to college next year, uh, he may not be in my close circle next year. He'll be in somebody else's circle and he'll have circles of his own, right? But your circle may change. I want you to take the time in the coming week, if you haven't done it already, to just go, who has God uniquely placed me into the lives of for the purpose of revealing him, either to fellow believers or to those who don't know Jesus at all? And once you've identified who those people are, then the very next step I think Paul puts on great display here. Because when I tell you that I think God has called us to be the church with our friends and neighbors and coworkers and family, I would guess that for some of you, your first objection is, 
well, I don't know what to say. I'm not very good at evangelism. I don't have all the apologetic answers. I'm kind of shy. I'm kind of quiet. Can I just ride along with somebody else while they do it, right? I want to tell you the fact that you don't know how to do it or the fact that you don't know how to have an influence or the fact that you don't have enough power or that you don't have the right words to say or that you don't feel like you have the ability to reveal Christ in an accurate way is precisely, number one, true, but secondly, precisely why prayer is the most important step in the process. Because Paul doesn't have the power to influence us on his own. A great speech isn't going to do it. Well-articulated theological points are not going to do it. A great sermon, a great lecture, that doesn't change people's lives. What changes people's lives is the, the faithfulness of God's people in conjunction with his power. That's why he falls to his knees in prayer. And so for us, identify who's in your circle, and the very next thing you should do before you say a word to those people is start praying for them by name. Start praying for them. Pray that God's love and his power would be revealed to them through you or through circumstances that God would move in the lives of the people in your sphere, whether they're your children or your spouse or your coworkers or your neighbors or your friends or whatever. Start to pray because you're right. You don't have all the power. You don't have all the knowledge. You can't be everywhere at once. You can't have all the discernment, but you know someone who has all those things. Jesus has all the power. He's got all the knowledge and he's with us always. So why not turn to him? That's what Paul does here at the beginning of Ephesians 3. Or excuse me, at the end of Ephesians 3, before he pivots to some of these practical things. He says this, and I want us to look at his way in, the way in which he prays, because he sets a pretty decent model for us here. Look at the way he prays. We see this just in the first couple of verses we're studying this morning. He says in 14 and 15, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now he he launches into what he's praying for. Before we talk about what he's praying for, let's look at the way he prays because there's there's a great model for us as well. The first thing I want you to see is that he prays in alignment with the purposes of God. He prays in alignment with the purposes of God. So right there in 14, he says, for this reason. And if you'll remember in chapter three, verse one, before he got sidetracked on his own calling and his own stewardship, he said, for this reason. Well, what's he talking about? He's saying, because of the things I've just articulated. Well, we don't have to look very far to remind ourselves to be refreshed of the reason for which Paul is praying, but it's in alignment with the purpose of God. Ephesians 2, 9, and 10 says that we've been saved not as a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He redeems us that we would walk revelatory lives, that we would live lives of good works that put him on display. So when he says for this reason, part of what he's talking about is the alignment with the purpose for which we were redeemed. Not only that, at the end of Ephesians 2, and we read this last week as well, but it's worth going over again. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We talked several weeks ago about the fact that God is building us up like living stones, Peter says. Like living stones to be a residence for God. That he would reside in us and put himself on display through us. So then, as Paul prays, he prays in alignment with that purpose. 
with our redemption, with our unity, with our understanding of our brokenness, that revolutionary kindness that comes from humble solidarity with our fellow man. He says, for this reason. What reason? He prays in alignment with God's purposes. Jesus himself says, we should seek first the kingdom, right? That's in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter six, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I think for many of us, when we think about prayer, we think about prayer as a way to achieve our purposes and our ends, right? There are things we want or things we'd like God to do or answers to questions we'd like to receive and we think of prayer as a way to sort of put an email in God's inbox and have him do the thing we're telling him to do. What I want you to see about Paul's prayer here is that he begins the prayer prayer in alignment with God's eternal purpose. You want a recipe for success in prayer? Align your prayer with God's reasons. Align your prayer with God's purpose. So the first thing we see about Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3.14 is that it's for the reasons that God has already articulated, unity of his people, redemption of the lost, the saving of those who cannot save themselves. Not only is his prayer in alignment with God's purpose, look at what he does next. He says, verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees. I bow my knees. Now, I don't want to make too much about being on your knees, but it's worth noting here that there is a posture of humility. And it's not about the kneeling. That's not really what matters. Although, although it is worth noting that in, uh, sort of in Jewish culture, kneeling is not the posture that they typically use for prayer. So this shows a kind of desperation. It shows a deeper humility. It shows a sense of really crying out to God that he would fall to his knees because that isn't the posture in which Jewish men typically prayed. But it's important for us to see that not only is he praying in alignment with the purpose of God, he prays for the reasons that God has articulated already and in alignment with that, but he prays on his knees. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. There is something important about coming to God in humility. We don't necessarily come to him with our demands we don't come to him you know, with, with our insistence. We don't come to him uh, expecting that he will follow our, our orders. We come to him recognizing that he is worthy of it all. We sang, I, I tell you what, worship team, I could have just, just sat there and sang that chorus again and again and again. Because there's really nothing else to say, right? He is worthy of it all. The posture here is one of humility. Not only that, look at what else in 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I want you to see an alignment with God's purpose. I want you to see a, a posture of humility. And I want you to see a recognition of the affection of God. He says, I bow my knees before who? The Father. Interestingly, this is one of only two places in the writings of Paul where he refers to God as Father. Jesus does that all the time. Paul doesn't do it that often. And when he does it here, what he's articulating in, these, in this second uh, example of him using this language... When he calls God Father, what he's saying is that I bow before the king of the universe, but I want you to know he's also my dad. He's our father. So there is both a humility that comes from the created to the creator, but there is also the affection that comes from a, a child to a father that he knows loves him. So as we come before God in prayer, we come in alignment with his purpose, we come with a posture of humility, and we come in recognition of his affection that God loves us. We're gonna look here in a second at what he actually prays. The content of his prayer is all about the love of God. But here's the thing. He's not praying that the people in Ephesus or the people in these early churches will love God more. What he's praying for them is that they will more greatly understand God's love for them. 
I think sometimes we work really hard to try our best to love God more. Maybe in this season, you're feeling guilty about your inability to worship in your living room or to figure out how to make church work with your kids running all around or whatever. Let yourselves off the hook in trying to love God better on Sunday morning and give yourself permission to just be loved by God more clearly. That's what he's praying here. He's recognizing the affection of God for him. He says, for this reason, in alignment with God's purpose, I bow my knees before the Father. There's alignment, there's humility, there's a recognition of God's affection and and that reciprocated affection from the child. Look at what he does next in, in understanding the reason for his prayer. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Not only is there recognition of his affection for us, as a a child to a father and a father to a child, but there's also recognition of his authority. There's recognition of his authority. He says, I bow my knees before the father who's given every family in heaven and on earth its name. He's just talked about the fact that there are no, no longer all of these different families, Jews and Gentiles and insiders and outsiders, but now there's one family. Now he says, even those disparate families we used to be were created and named by God. That's the one I'm kneeling before. He's my father, but he's also the creator and the originator of all things. When I got a problem with my computer, I want to take that to the one who designed the computer. You go to the, you know, you go to the, uh, the Apple store and you let the people there tell you what to do. I'm not going to take my computer to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Why not take it to the one who designed it, right? He says, I'm kneeling before my father who, for the record, also has all the authority, all the power. He created all things, gave everything their name. Who better to go to? Who better to go to? He's praying in alignment with God's purpose. He's praying in submission. He's praying in recognition of God's affection. He's praying in recognition of God's authority. And he's praying in recognition of God's generosity. Keep reading with me. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, 16, that according to the riches of his glory, according to the riches of his glory, not only is he praying in recognition of the Father's affection, not only is he praying in recognition of of the Father's authority and supremacy, but he's praying in recognition of the Father's generosity. We talked about this in August of 2018, but it's important to note here that the word according to his glorious riches is important. He's not talking about God just giving us something out of his riches. He's talking about God giving to us proportionally with his riches. He's not just giving something to us as a scrap under the table to a dog. He's giving something in proportion according to the measure of his glorious riches. He's talking about the generosity of God. So he prays, understanding God's purpose, understanding God's power, understanding God's affection, in humble, uh, uh, humble kneeling before him, and he prays knowing that the one he prays to is generous, is gracious and kind. Not only does he pray in recognition of God's generosity, but he prays in recognition of God's grace. Note here that he says, I'm praying To the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant. I don't, I don't wanna, I don't wanna drill down too deep here, but he may grant is different, is different than he must do. I'm praying to the Father who gave everything its name, who gives according to his riches, who will do what we tell him to do because we told him to do it. That's a whole different thing than saying who will grant. What's who will grant? Who will grant is a confidence in the grace of God. 
that he gives not because he's obligated to, not because he's obligated to, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we've done enough good deeds or put enough money in an offering plate, but that this gracious, powerful, authoritative father who loves us out of his generosity and according to it in proportion will grant by his sovereign choice and out of his grace. This is a, this is a beautiful posture of prayer. As we're thinking about praying, for our community, as we're thinking about praying for one another as a church family, as you're thinking about praying for your individual circles, the people that God has placed uniquely in your life for you to uniquely reveal Christ to, this is the way in which we pray for them as well. We come before God in alignment with his purpose, in submission to his authority, with a posture of humility, in recognition of his love for us and his authority, his generosity, and his grace. Why does Paul pray like this? Why does he pray like this? Well, he recognizes that his lecture isn't gonna be enough, that his articulation, that his theology isn't gonna be enough. You see, you and I need to be in recognition of all those things as well. We need to recognize that if, if our circle is going to be transformed for the kingdom of God, if our circle is gonna be transformed as God reveals himself through us, it's not gonna be because we came up with really good answers to tricky questions about the Bible. And it's not gonna be because we mowed enough lawns or because we handed out enough tracts. If the lives of the people around us are transformed, it's gonna be because we came before this loving, powerful, gracious, generous God who loves and cares about our friends and neighbors and family even more than we do. And so in our calling out to God on their behalf, we're actually aligning with his heart for them as well. We are joining the heart of Jesus in compassion for those in our circle. That's what Paul does here. He recognizes that there are things he himself can't do. I, uh, I remember when my kids were very little, just Jack and Hank, my first guys, were just babies. And at one point we bought, when, uh, when Hank was born, we had this like changing table thing that I needed to attach to the wall because it's supposed to be braced or whatever. We we're living at Hume Lake. And uh, so it's, you know, the instructions are fairly simple. There's a changing table deal and then there's straps on the back and all you gotta do is take a drill and you just drill it in and put like these uh, anchoring screws in the studs behind the changing table. And then I guess the thing won't fall over on your baby, right? Which is, it's good. You never want the changing table to fall over on your baby. So I, I'm, a, I'm a dutiful husband. I'm a good dad. So I get the drill out. I have the instructions in front of me. I have the changing tables there. And I, and I go in to, uh, to anchor this thing to the wall and, uh, and the drill just goes straight through. Like it's, it just goes through the drywall. There's nothing there. So I think, well, I missed... I missed the stud by a little, so I scoot over, whoo, straight through. I, I can't, I mean, how big these studs have to be, and they can't be too big, so I, I scoot over just a little bit more. Whoo, I do, you guys, literally, I did a dot-to-dot -dot line all the way across the length of that thing. I never found a board bag. I don't know, I don't know what, I do know what's wrong with me. I have limited skills when it comes to home improvement, right? I recognize that. And so I recognized in that moment that I needed to find somebody who had more power, more knowledge, more wisdom, more skill, than I did. What is prayer? Prayer is a recognition on the part of the ambassador, on a part of the disciple, that there's only so much I can do. And while I will do my part, I need God's intervention on behalf of those I love, and, and more importantly, on behalf of those he loves. So there's a guy named Eric Simpson, who's a great friend of mine, and anytime I needed to hang a curtain rod, anytime I needed to like, you know, figure out anything technical, he was the guy who came over. In fact, it's interesting, uh, my first friends, some of the first people I met at Fullerton when I first moved here, we moved in that new house and there were all kinds of things I didn't know how to do. I met Randy Smith right away. I met Jason White right away. I met Dave Leisure, who I think I saw earlier as part of the security team. My, some of my earliest friends, Tim Pratt, people from Fullerton who were 
so much more skilled than me in all of these ways that I'm not skilled. And they continue to come to my rescue regularly when I almost burn down my house or can't figure out how to turn on my fireplace or whatever. These guys come to my rescue. What am I doing? We do this all the time in our lives. We recognize the place where we are limited and we lean into greater strength, greater knowledge, greater ability. All that Paul is doing here as he kneels before the Father in alignment with God's purpose, because of his generosity and his authority and his grace, he is simply recognizing, as, was, as must we, that there's only so much we're gonna be able to do in the lives of our friends and family and neighbors. That we need greater skill, we need greater power, we need greater love, we need greater authority, and that is where prayer becomes the most important tool that we have as we have influence in our circle. Let's look at what he prays. And here we're gonna move pretty quick because I've already covered a lot of this. So if you don't remember it, you'll have to go back to August 26th. But look at what he prays for. By the way, what he's praying here, this prayer is like dominoes or it's like a telescope that keeps expanding. These things just stack on each other. So you'll see the way they stack. Let's read it together. This is what he's praying. I'm praying to this generous and gracious God that he will grant, verse 16, that he will grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that's a mouthful. It's it's an incredible prayer, he prays. And ultimately, it's a prayer for an increase or a growth in, in the follower of Jesus' understanding of his affection. So let me just show you the way it unspools. We'll do this really quick. He prays first. He starts with the empowerment of the Spirit. I pray that the Spirit of God will give you strength in your inner being. Not muscles, not that sort of physical ability to do miraculous signs and wonders, but strengthened inside for a purpose. I pray the Spirit will strengthen you in your inner being, he says, so that... The Lord Jesus may dwell in you, right? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We talked in August, a year and a half ago, about the fact that this idea of him dwelling is not the idea of us uh, inviting him into our heart, right? It's not the idea of Jesus coming and making our heart his home. The idea is that he is settled down in us, right? That he's not going anywhere. That we increasingly need the power of God's spirit to remind us that Jesus loves us because he chooses to, not because we deserve it. If the love of Jesus is dependent upon our actions or our good deeds or our holiness or sinlessness, guess what? Jesus has every reason to abandon all of us. And we live with that, right? You live with the understanding constantly that like, if it's about my works or my ability to be good, then I can have no relationship with God. It is only because Jesus loves me by his grace, which Paul has already articulated in Ephesians 2, It's only by his grace that I can be saved. But our hearts and our minds wrestle with that, don't we? And we have this this temptation or tendency to feel like Jesus will abandon us because we've been abandoned by others. He says, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will strengthen your inner 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 being so that Christ will dwell in you, that he'll be settled down and at home in you. And then once you recognize that Jesus isn't going anywhere, that he loves you and that he's settled down and at home in you, then you become rooted and established in his love. And we talked before about the idea that these are two different words. One's architectural and one's agricultural. The rooted means that we'd be drawing sustenance from his love. I don't know what sustains you. I don't know where you draw your life and energy and health and well-being. But we are meant as followers of Jesus to draw our sustenance from Christ who is the true vine. That's John 15. We studied it a little while ago, right? 
Jesus is meant to be the source of our sustenance. We're meant to be rooted in his love. Not only that, uh, grounded in his love or established in his love as architectural. What's that mean? It means that he's meant to be the foundation of our life. That Jesus isn't just a decoration we put on the walls of our castle, right? Jesus isn't, isn't just some sort of accoutrement. We build our life and then we decorate it with Christianity. No, no, no. Jesus is meant to be the cornerstone. He's the establishment upon which the rest of our life is built. His love becomes the base layer for everything we are. He says, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will empower your inner being so that Jesus will be settled down and at home in you so that you'll be rooted and grounded in his love so that then, watch the way it expands or the dominoes fall, once you're rooted and grounded, sustained and established in his love, then you have the power together with all the saints to begin to increasingly apprehend. The word comprehend is not a great word for this but to increasingly reel in, in more and more, in greater measure, the height and depth and width and length of the unknowable love of Jesus. That happens in community. It doesn't happen by ourselves. As we begin to enter into family life together, as we get deeper and deeper into our circles, Jesus is revealed in new ways because there are things you know and have experienced about Christ or things you've learned about Christ that are different than my experience and different than what I've learned. I need your stories. I need your stories and you need mine because it is in the community of the saints that our view of the unknowable love of Christ is increasingly reeled in or apprehended. You and I will never comprehend The love of Christ. You get that, right? You're never going to get to the end of it and go, yes, I I completed the course. I graduated from the love of Christ school. I know everything there is. I got my PhD in it. No, no, no. You and I will never exhaust our need to know more about the height and depth and width and length of the unknowable love of Christ. We will never exhaust. We'll spend eternity plumbing the depths of his love. The Spirit empowers us so that Jesus is settled down and at home in us. And then we, being rooted and grounded in that very same love, have power together with the saints in our togetherness to increasingly grow in our knowledge of the unknowable love of Jesus and then to be filled to a measure of the fullness of God. Filled to a measure of the fullness of God. We've already looked in Ephesians here about the idea that we as a church are meant to present something of his fullness. That in us his fullness goes on display. But if you're trying to imagine what it means as we're increasingly understanding the unknowable love of Christ and its height and depth and width and length, we get filled up with this fullness. Well, think about it this way. Maybe it's helpful to think about the rest of, or the opposite of that. The opposite of being filled with the fullness of God is being half empty with the emptiness of the world. Half empty, right? With the emptiness of the world, all of the emptiness of its pursuits. Think about all the other things you could chase or all the other things you could try and fill yourself with. The pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of money or the pursuit of your own ego. The pursuit of some kind of recognition. You could pursue all the wonderful experiences the world have to offer. And if you've been pursuing those things, do you feel full? Do you feel filled up? Uh, if you're like me, you know, you feel a little empty still. You feel kind of, you know, you, it, it's nice to take a cool trip. It's nice to have a fun experience. It's nice to get a bonus, have a little bit of money in your pocket, right? It's nice for people to recognize who you are. It's nice to feel good. But how lasting is that? You ever feel full with the things the world says will fill you? No, because those things only kind of half fill you for a little bit of time and leave you feeling empty even still. We're talking about being satisfied by the fullness of God who fills all things. That is the end result here. The end result is that as we are empowered by the Spirit in our inner being, right, 
that what happens is Jesus is settled down and at home in us. We become rooted and grounded in his love, which gives us the ability together with the saints to increasingly reel in the unknowable, the incomprehensible love of Christ in its height and depth and width and length. And to be filled up finally, to be full finally, because God fills all things and he satisfies our souls. That's what Paul's praying. He goes, look, I I can tell you all about the redeeming work of Christ. I can tell you all about the fact that you were broken and he saved you by his grace. I can tell you all about the fact that there's not supposed to be any outsiders, that we're all insiders in Jesus and he's creating this new family. I can tell you all about the fact that I've been called to be a steward of the grace of God, a minister of this truth to people and I'm taking who I am and what I've been given and I'm giving it to other people for the glory of God. I can tell you all this stuff but at the end of the day, if you're gonna be filled with the measure of the fullness of God, It's going to be because I'm on my knees in prayer before the one who gave everything its name. I'm on my knees before my father who according to his riches will grant us by his grace these realities. It's worth noting here that this this increasing love, this growing love is something he's praying for the church. He's praying it for Christians. These are people who already know. They've, they've presumably already been redeemed. They've already put their faith in Jesus. Their sins have already been forgiven. What's the implication? That that growth in the knowledge of his love, that that settled downness in the knowledge of his love, that that need for the spirit of God to empower us in our inner being, that's not something that like only newbies need. That's something all of us need. Why? Because we never finish this process. It's something we still need to be praying for each other today. And not only does he want our confidence in the knowledge of his love to grow, but he also wants our confidence in the knowledge of his power, the expectation of his power to grow. Look at the way he finishes this in 20. He says, now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. At the end of this prayer, he says, look, I know, I know this feels like a tall order that Jesus would be settled down in us, but I also want to remind you that this same God, whose, whose love we need to increasingly comprehend or apprehend, this same God has all the power. He has all the power. In fact, he's capable of more than all we can imagine, more than all we ask. You see, in the same way that you and I will never exhaust our understanding or our need for understanding with regard to his incomprehensible love, You and I will never finish the course on God's power because his power is limitless. It's unknowable. It's undreamable. It's unthinkable. And so Paul says, I want to remind you not only of your need, I want to pray for you, not only that you would grow in the knowledge of his love for you, but that you would grow in the knowledge of his unquenchable power, inexhaustible power that is available to you. In pursuit of his glory in Christ, he says, the eternal glory of God through every generation. That's eternal glory. His eternal glory where? In Christ Jesus and in us, the church. Not not this building, not the service on Sunday morning. You and me, the church, the real church. He is glorified in the church and in Christ. What What a great privilege to be named alongside the Lord Jesus here as a route to which God's eternal glory is being made manifest. His love is incomprehensible. His power is unthinkable. Is yours? His love is incomprehensible. His power is unthinkable. Is, is your love incomprehensible? Would you, would that, it's not, mine's not. You can, you can fairly well uh, comprehend my love. It doesn't take too long. My power, I mean, just look. No, I don't have unthinkable power. I don't have incomprehensible love. Why then wouldn't I cry out 
to the one who is my father who has those things on behalf of those I love? Why in the world would I try and do the work of an ambassador in my own comprehensible love and my own thinkable power? Why, why would I try and serve you? Why would I try and share the gospel? Why would I try and reveal Christ in my thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes? Why would I try and do those things in my thinkable power? That makes no sense when I am a child of the king whose power is incomprehensible. Paul says, look, I, I can lay all these things out to you, but the reality is what's gonna make a difference is when I get on my knees before my father and ask him to increasingly reveal his love and power to you because what you need is a growing knowledge of his love and power because you'll never hit the end of that pursuit. This is the thing that you and I should, should still be praying for one another now. Paul has articulated this case and he prays this prayer for the church, for us, a group of people who are redeemed but need to know Christ's love and power increasingly. We, you and I, should have the same approach. The very same approach in this day and age that we would seek alignment with God's purpose in prayer. That we would come before him in humility, in recognition of his affection for us, in recognition of his authority and his generosity and his grace. That we come to him because he is capable of infinitely more than we are and yet our purposes are aligned with him. What do we want? We want to see our children grow in the knowledge of Jesus. We want to see our spouses grow in the knowledge of Jesus to be conformed to his image to carry his peace, to be revolutionarily kind because of humble solidarity. That's what we want for our neighbors. That's what we want for our coworkers. That's what we want for our world. That Jesus would be put on display. Can I tell you, it's not just a great prayer for the church, although it is that in this context. This is a prayer we can pray for everybody in our circle. This is a prayer we can pray for everybody because even those who hate God, even those who've dismissed God, even those who've thrown away the scriptures, you know what they need? They need to know the incomprehensible love in increasing measure. And the only way that happens is when God breaks into their life. It's not going to be because you gave them a good tract or because you came up with a really great evangelistic presentation. No offense. I'm sure you've got a good one. But the people that you know who hate the church, the people you know who used to go to church and have abandoned it, you know what they need to see now more than anything? They need to see the incomprehensible love and the unthinkable power of God on display. And it can be put on display through us, but only by the power of his spirit expressed by his people in prayer. I hope that you will take me dead serious because I'm dead serious. Make a list. Make a list of the people that are around you that God has placed into your life. It, it doesn't need to be long. Most of us don't have significant influence on 50 people. We have significant influence on about 10 or 15, write down their names. Some of them are Christians, some of them aren't, some of them maybe used to be church attenders, whatever. Figure out who your circle is, and before you think about doing anything else, fall on your knees in alignment with the purpose of God. This Father, gracious, generous, in all authority, and say, God, will you increase my neighbor's knowledge of your incomprehensible love? Will you rescue them and save them, redeem them? Will you increase my, ch my children's knowledge of your incomprehensible power, your unthinkable strength? Let's begin to pray. That's a good starting place for us. Paul, before he pivots into action, he stops and says, for everything I've done, it will be wasted if I don't ask God to do what I'm not capable of doing. Would you pray with me? God, I pray this morning in humble recognition of your authority of your fatherly affection, 
of your generosity and your grace. And I pray this morning in alignment with your purpose that you would strengthen your church in our inner beings by the power of your spirit so that the Lord Jesus would be settled down at home in us and we being rooted and established in that love, your love, Lord Jesus, together with the saints would begin to increasingly understand their love and its height and depth and width and length, that we would know the unknowable, that we would begin to grasp your unknowable love to the end of being filled with your fullness, that we'd be satisfied in you and you alone. God, I pray that you would do these things through the working of your unthinkable power that, that does more and is capable of more than even all we can ask or imagine. Would you move like that in us, we pray. For your glory in Christ Jesus and in your church. Amen.